what is a life worth? If it was up to you, how exactly would you be able to calculate the worth of a life? As strange as that question might be to us, as strange as it might be to start to think, how do I calculate the worth of a life? That was actually the task given to Kenneth Feinberg. Kenneth Feinberg was an attorney in Washington, D.C., and after the attacks on September 11th in 2001, he was put in charge of the 9-11 Compensation Fund. I don't know if you've heard of this fund. There's a book written about it and a movie, but this was the $7 billion fund that Congress created to help out the victims of 9-11, those who had suffered so much loss and, to be honest, to limit lawsuits that were for sure coming. The only problem was with this, this fund, how do you determine the worth of a life? How do you put a number on the loss of a loved one? How do you judge the worth of this life versus that life? So Kenneth had this unbelievably hard task before him. How do I determine in monetary value the worth of a life? So he began interviewing people, people that had lost family members and loved ones, asking them question after question, trying to get some formula in order to determine what a life's worth was. So he asked questions like, what would the victim have earned over their lifetime? How many dependents did they have left? Did they have a family? Did they have life insurance? Trying to measure it all out, trying to do what was right. However, as he interviewed more and more people and saw the loss of these family members, he was brought face to face with the reality of what a human life is really worth. So that question is a good question for us this morning as we get into the heart of Philippians. What is a life worth? So far in this letter, Paul has been describing himself. He's been going through his own circumstances, his time in prison, and what God has been doing through that. But now he turns the attention to the church. Now he turns his attention to what the church needs to be doing. And he brings them face to face with that question what is the Christian life worth? And what he's going to say, and what I hope we can all see this morning, is that our lives are worth the price of Jesus Christ. And that means everything. So three things that help us see that this morning. The priority of a worthy life, the people of a worthy life, and the practice of a worthy life. And I'll go through those one by one. First, we must see the priority that Paul puts on a worthy life. Look back at verse 27. And like I said, Paul so far has been talking about his own circumstances. Now he turns to the church and he turns to us. Here's what Paul has been doing. Now what are we to be doing? Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And that word only should get our attention in all the best ways this morning. Because when Paul says only, he really means only. He really means only this. The Greek word there is the one and only thing that's necessary of you as a people. Karl Barth, the famous theologian, was so taken back by this that he used the vivid imagery that said that pretty much Paul was putting one finger in the air to the church and saying, this is the one thing you have to do. This is it. Paul is prioritizing the life of the church around one thing only, and that's a really big deal, isn't it? Because if you stop and think about it, we know Paul. Paul wasn't known for one thing. He was known for a thousand things. 
Paul was known throughout the New Testament for preaching and writing and traveling and evangelizing and building tents and being in jail and being out of jail, being over here and being over there. So Paul, what do you mean only one thing? Because when I look at your life, you're doing all different sorts of things. Don't miss what Paul is saying here because you do all different sorts of things too. What is Paul saying? Paul is saying all those different things that we see him doing throughout his life and ministry are really just many different ways of him doing one thing. All those different things are really only about one thing. They all fall under the banner of living a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's his priority, and everything else he does now flows out of that and speaks to that. So that, that is really important, isn't it? We have to start asking if that's the priority, if that's the only priority of the Christian life, what's it mean? What's it mean to be worthy of the gospel? Well, that word worthy has at its root the word weight, W-E-I-G-H-T, if I can get my spelling correct this morning. Weight, or, or better yet, a, a counterweight, a counterbalance. So imagine what Paul's saying here. Our lives are like those balance scales. Will has some of these in his office, where you have a, a scale on this side and a scale on this side, where you put weight on this side and then you try to balance out with other weight on this side to bring a perfect balance to it. And Paul's point is, in verse 27, that God has acted upon one side of your life in such a profound way that he has set a prioritized weight. And what is that weight? It's the giving of his son. It's the giving of his son, Jesus Christ, in the gospel. And that has set such a weight on your life that now your life has to respond by balancing itself out. What is your life worth? Your life is worth the weight of Jesus Christ and all that he has done for you. And so now in response, your life now weighs the same as the gospel. Your life should be in balance with the weight of Jesus Christ. Because you see, the gospel of Jesus is not just some past event. It's an ever-present reality. And Paul is saying for the church, this must remain our top priority, our only priority, so much so that everything we do reflects what he has done. And Paul's wisdom here has proven so true in the American church over the last few years. I mean, you all have seen it. More and more stories coming out all the time of abuses and scandals in Christ's church. And as a pastor in the church and as people in the church, you have to start asking the question as these stories continue to come out and all these controversies. How is this happening? How does this keep happening to Christ's church? Because you know for most of these churches, it didn't start there. It didn't start in abuse and scandal, but it led there. So how does that happen? One church was featured recently in a documentary that I watched, and that church has experienced so much external success over the past couple decades, so much success with attendance on Sunday mornings, so much success in reaching people far from Jesus. The pews were full. Everything was growing. Finances and missions, conversions, all of it. And everyone in that church was super excited. But over time, news started coming out of manipulation and bullying, lies and cover-up, inappropriate behavior, 
that eventually led to abuse and affairs, all of it coming to the surface. And at one point in the documentary, they interviewed someone on staff with that church. And I won't forget this. He said one Sunday in the midst of all this that was going on, he slipped into the back of a morning service and it was packed and people were singing, everyone's excited. And he knew all this stuff kind of going on behind the scenes. And he thought to himself, if Jesus was here right now, he would not be happy with any of this. If Jesus was here right now, I don't think he'd like being a part of this church. Do you see what Paul is saying in Philippians 1? It doesn't matter what we're doing if we're not making Jesus happy. If our lives aren't weighing the same as Jesus, because that's the priority. Paul says that's that's really it. No matter what else we're doing, no matter what all the things that we could be doing, if we're not making Jesus happy, if we're not living a life worthy of the gospel, that's the priority. So Paul asked us this morning, is that our priority? Is Philippians 1.27 our priority? And don't mistake what Paul is saying here. This is not a retreat from life in this world. This is not that I have to give up all these things of the world to kind of just focus on the spiritual Jesus all the time. Paul is not asking us to become a monk. He's not asking us to retreat from your life in this world. He's asking you to reorient your life in this world. To have on your scale of life above all else the gospel of Jesus Christ. So much so that your life on the other side starts to respond out of that. So what does that life worthy of the gospel actually look like? We've seen the priority of the worth we must have. Now let's look at the people of worth that we will become. What do the people of a worthy life actually look like? Look back at verse 27. And this doesn't come through as much in the English, but that phrase, let your manner of life, that entire phrase is one really important verb in the Greek. In fact, it's so important that you probably have a footnote in your Bible in front of you. And that footnote will tell you that this one important word means to only behave as citizens. And that word citizens is so important for us to understand because that word is going to guide the rest of the letter to the church at Philippi. That word is polituiste, which is where we get the word city, polis. So back then, the group you identified with was not your workplace. The group you identified with was not your social status or your sports team or your political party. The group you identified with was your city. You were a citizen above all else. One writer said, a man without a city is not a man. That's how important the city was to the person and to the people. Their worth was wrapped up completely in their citizenship. And so Paul is saying to, your, to the church there, conduct yourself in a manner to behave like citizens. And this is the only place in the New Testament Paul uses this terminology. You saw it in our assurance of pardon too in Philippians 3, when he said that your citizenship is in heaven. When he talks about the Christian life, Paul usually uses the metaphor of walking, like in Ephesians 4, Colossians 2, walk in a manner worthy of the Christian life. But here he says something different. He doesn't say walk. He says behave like a citizen. Why? Well, Will talked about this if you were here a couple weeks ago when he introduced the letter to the church. But Philippi had a unique citizenship. Although it was 800 miles plus from Rome, 
it was given the citizenship of Rome because of a great military battle. So even though these people lived far, far away from Rome, they were considered citizens of Rome. They were a colony of Rome. And you need to know these people were so proud of that. So when the Philippians heard to live like a citizen, they saw all the privileges that meant for them, all the responsibilities, and they wanted to live into that. They didn't want to just talk about being a citizen. They wanted to embody it. They wanted to live out of that citizenship because they were proud, and they wanted to show all that it meant. You see, being a citizen wasn't just a matter of a certain behavior or a list of to-dos or to-don'ts to, to do or not to do. It was embodying an entire way of life, from the way you dressed to what you ate to the customs you followed, all of it. It was who they were. And you can, you can imagine what that's like for you, too. Because although we don't have that, such a strong sense of citizenship, we are, for the most of us in here, are Americans, right? And if you spent any time in any other part of the world, if you traveled overseas, it doesn't take long for you to be asked, where are you from? Even if you look externally similar to someone from a different country, it quickly comes out that you're from a different place. Because you are thoroughly an American in all of its ways. Not just in how you speak or how you act, but even down to the way you dress. Even down to the the nitty gritty of how you smell. And if you don't believe me, ask an international friend. Americans have a distinct smell about them. That's how much the American citizenship has gotten into our very lives. When we go to a different country, even though we don't realize it, we are a different people based on a different citizenship. So we stand out. In fact, Bobby Pepiot was telling the story of him and Nate when they came back from Thailand. They were standing in the airport and they started playing this game where they could look at other people in lines and they could point out who was an American and who was not American just by looking and observing what they were doing. It's that visible. It's that evident, our citizenship. So what does it mean to live a life worthy of the gospel? Do you see how Paul is connecting the dots for both them in Philippi and for us this morning? Paul is saying if we are that shaped by our citizenship of our country, shouldn't we be more shaped by our citizenship of Christ? He's saying, Philippians, you were bought with a price. Your citizenship is now heaven. So that should look like that on earth. So much so that people will really start to ask, Hey, where are you from? Because you don't talk like we talk around here. You don't act like we act around here. Where are you from because you feel different than us? When the gospel of Jesus Christ is bearing its weight on the church's lives, it creates a different people altogether, a different citizenship. You are a colony of heaven on earth, so much so that Paul says in verse 27, that he will hear about it even if he doesn't come there. It will be that powerful to him that even if he doesn't come visit them, he will hear about the difference they are making in that world. And this is convicting, isn't it? Sinclair Ferguson, the Scottish pastor, makes a really interesting point that today when you get any training or books on evangelism or witnessing in the world, most of the church's call in the world is focused on us asking the right questions to the non-Christian world. He said any, any training on evangelism is focused on questions that Christians can ask non-Christians to make them now interested in the church. 
It's all based on us asking them questions. But he says if you look at the New Testament, what Paul is saying here is the opposite will be true. That the quality of lives of Christians would be so different that the church wouldn't be asking questions, the world would be asking questions. He writes, why in the West, why in the, in the Western world do we need to devise techniques for witnessing to Christ? Perhaps the simplest answer is that we have not lived in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. We've had all too little of the lifestyle, the atmosphere, or even the accent of heaven, and this is where Christ is. What was so attractive about the, about the, the early church, it wasn't just their ideas and doctrines, it was their people. The church became, for the watching world, a place of heaven on earth where they could come to have their sins forgiven, where they could, become, they could come, despite their differences, to come together under the banner of Jesus Christ. The early church knew their citizenship was not here, but it was in heaven, and so they lived out heaven on earth before a watching world. You see, the gospel of Jesus Christ doesn't just change our priorities. It changes us as a people. It makes us into a people who are different, and we will practice heaven on earth now. So what will that look like? What will it look like to practice heaven on earth now? Because Paul says it will be visible. It will be tangible in, in such a way that people will ask, where are you all from? We've seen the priority. We've seen the people. Now let's finish by looking at the practice. What does citizenship of heaven on earth look like for the church? Look back at verse 27. What does Paul want to hear of the church? He says, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. Did you catch those two things? How will the church be different? The gospel of Jesus Christ creates a people that are united together inside the church, and they're courageous together outside the church. Inside the church, we're united together in one mind. Whether we're standing firm or striving side by side, we have one mind and one spirit under the oneness of Jesus Christ. And we're courageous outside. As we live that united body together, that will rub up against the world. It will look different. And as conflict comes to us, as it did to Paul, and as it did to the Philippian church, we will not be frightened by it. Because we stand together, we'll actually be courageous in spite of that. That's what the gospel of Jesus Christ does. It unites us together and makes us courageous. And that seems very simple on paper, but you all know how hard this is. I mean, if you want to get practical here, you know how hard it is to be united. But Paul says we must be united because we're not just speaking to us. We're speaking to who our God is. And so we're a people that when we do something wrong, we actually say we're sorry. We don't cover it up. We don't try to get around it. We say we're sorry. Why? Because that's impossible. That only comes from heaven. Only comes from a God who forgives us in our wrongs. And when we've been wronged, over time, through all the hardships of being wronged, we actually are able to forgive from the heart. And that sounds so simple on paper, but have you ever tried it? 
Have you ever tried to forgive someone really from the heart of someone that's wronged you? It's impossible because it has to come from heaven. And when we think of heaven on earth, we might think of all these super spiritual things, but really it comes down to we're united together. We practice repentance and forgiveness together. We come together under a God who's united us together. And here's why this is so important for us to be united. Because like I said, when you live like this, this heaven on earth, you will face suffering. That's what Paul says in verse 29. I don't know if you noticed it, but it's one of the strangest verses. He says that God has actually granted us, he's given us the grace to not only believe, but to suffer with him. Paul says it is a gift of God to suffer. Because if the church follows Jesus in the world, suffering will be unavoidable. Opposition, conflict will be unavoidable. And I don't know about you, but suffering scares me. Opposition scares me. But Paul says we don't have to be scared because it will be our sign of not only our opponent's destruction, but our salvation. Being united together as a church, being externally courageous in the world, it will be the great sign of not only our opponent's destruction, but also our salvation. So what does that mean? This is what Martin Luther King Jr. called the double victory of Christianity. And it is so beautiful. In 1957, Martin Luther King Jr. took the pulpit at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama. And he was looking out at a congregation that was facing all kinds of opposition. And they needed to be scared. They had just gotten through a year of the Montgomery bus boycott. All that work, all that suffering, all that conflict, all that opposition. And you know what they met after that? Ten days into the new year, four black churches were bombed in Montgomery, Alabama. All that work, and then they were faced with four churches being bombed ten days into the new year. What would you tell a congregation going through all that? What would you tell a congregation that is so discouraged and so close to being disunified based on the suffering? Martin Luther King Jr. spoke on loving your enemies. And listen to how he, how he concludes that sermon. And see how he unites them together and brings them courage at the same time through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what he said. For the salvation of our nation and the salvation of mankind, we must follow another way. This is the only way to create the beloved community, that unity. To our most bitter opponents, we say, we shall match your capacity to inflict suffering by our capacity to endure suffering. Do to us what you will, and we shall continue to love you. Throw us in jail, and we will still love you. Threaten our children and bomb our churches and our homes, and we will still love you. Send your hooded perpetrators of violence into our communities at the midnight hour and beat us and leave us half dead. And as hard as it is, we shall still love you. And here's the key, and this is what Paul is talking about. But be assured, we will wear you down with all the lashings that we suffer. And one day we will win our freedom. And we will not only win freedom for ourselves, we will so appeal to your heart and your conscience that we will win you over in the process. And our victory will then become a double victory. In the black church's suffering, as they continue to face opposition and as they continue to love their enemies instead of seek revenge on their enemies, it not only led to their freedom, but their opponent's freedom. 
Do you see what Paul's saying here? The church as a distinct people of heaven on earth, united together in Christ's love, will go out to the world courageous in that same love. And that going out into the world will bring the double victory. It will be a sign not just of the world's destruction, but the church's salvation. And Paul knew this really well, didn't he? Because remember, he didn't just speak of opponents of Jesus. He was an opponent of Jesus. We all were, weren't we? We all were at one time an opponent of Jesus. And what undid us? What led to our salvation? What led to our victory? The sufferings of Jesus. Here's what Paul is saying, and this is especially important if you're suffering right now. You have to see this from Philippians 1. Paul says that suffering is a grace of God. Because suffering and victory always go together in the Christian life. They're never to be separated. They are not just chronological, like first we'll suffer for a long time, then one day we'll get victory. They're actually causal. One causes the other. We are victorious because of our suffering. Our suffering leads us to our victory because that's how our Savior did it. Martin Luther King Jr. could speak like this. Paul could speak like this because they knew the message of the cross was also their mode. It was their mission, their way of life, that through our suffering, God will always bring the victory. And that's what the cross always teaches us. That's why we have it right there in the center Because there is no greater opposition to Jesus than the cross. It was the worst that mankind could think of. It was the biggest scheme of the devil and hell. And Jesus used the world's worst to bring us our best, didn't he? Jesus used all the world's worst, turning it on on its head for its destruction and our salvation. So please remember this morning, if you are suffering... The cross isn't just your salvation, it's also your victory. So what is a life worth? The Christian life is worth the sufferings of Christ. That's what a life's worth. As the cross is our priority, as the cross makes us into a different type of people, we now get to share in the sufferings of Christ. And as we do in this mysterious way, Christ also suffers with us. He is closest to us in our suffering, bringing his victory. Because he will do with your sufferings exactly what he did with his. Proclaim his name and his victory forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all praise. Your son is worthy for he was slain and by his blood you ransomed a people for yourself from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And you have made us now a kingdom of priests to our God. And you have told us that we shall reign forever on this earth. Lord, help us to live into that. Help our hearts be captured again by you. And help us to suffer well for your name. It's in Christ's name. Amen.